Saba and Himyar, Chapter 1 of A Literary History of the Arabs by Reynold A. Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Saba and Himyar, Chapter 1 of A Literary History of the Arabs by Reynold A. Nicholson. With the Sabaeans, Arabian history in the proper sense may be said to begin, but as a preliminary step we must take account of certain races which figure more or less prominently in legend, and are considered by Moslem chroniclers to have been the original inhabitants of the country. Among these are the peoples of Ad and Thamud, which are constantly held up in the Quran as terrible examples of the pride that goeth before destruction. The home of the Adites was in Hadramaut, the province adjoining Yemen, on the borders of the desert named Ahafur Ramal. It is doubtful whether they were Semites, possibly of Aramaic descent, who were subdued and exterminated by invaders from the north, or as Hamel maintains, the representative of an imposing non-Semitic culture which survives in the tradition of many-colored Aram, the earthly paradise built by Shaddad, one of their kings. The story of their destruction is related as follows. They were a people of gigantic strength and stature, worshipping idols and committing all manner of wrong. And when God sent to them a prophet, Hud by name, who should warn them to repent, they answered, O Hud, thou hast brought us no evidence, and we will not abandon our gods for thy saying, nor will we believe in thee. We say that one of our gods hath afflicted thee with madness." Then a fearful drought fell upon the land of Ad, so that they sent a number of their chief men to Mecca to pray for rain. On arriving at Mecca, the envoys were hospitably received by the Amalekite prince Muawiyah ibn Bakr, who entertained them with wine and music, for he had two famous singing girls, known as Al-Jaradatan, which induced them to neglect their mission for the space of a whole month. At last, however, they got to business, and their spokesman had scarce finished his prayer when three clouds appeared of different colors, white, red, and black, and a voice cried from heaven, Choose for thyself and for thy people. He chose the black cloud, deeming that it had the greatest store of rain, whereupon the voice chanted, Thou hast chosen embers done, that will spare of Ad not one, that will leave nor father nor son, ere him to death they shall have done. Then God drove the cloud until it stood over the land of Ad, and there issued from it a roaring wind that consumed the whole people except a few who had taken the prophet's warning to heart and had renounced idolatry. From these in course of time a new people arose, who are called the second Ad. They had their settlements in Yemen, in the region of Sabah. The building of the great dyke of Ma'rab is commonly attributed to their king, Luqman ibn Ad, about whom many fables are told. 
he was surnamed the man of the vultures dhul nasur because it had been granted to him that he should live as long as seven vultures one after the other in north arabia between the hijaz and syria dwelt the kindred race of thamud described in the koran surah seven seventy two as inhabiting houses which they cut for themselves in the rocks evidently muhammad did not know the true nature of the hewn chambers which are still to be seen at hijr in saleh a week's journey northward from medina and which are proved by the nabataean inscriptions engraved on them to have been sepulchral monuments thamud sinned in the same way as ad and suffered a like fate they scouted the prophet saleh refusing to believe in him unless he should work a miracle saleh then caused a she-camel big with young to come forth from a rock and bade them do her no hurt but one of the miscreants qudar the red al-ahmar hamstrung and killed her whereupon a great earthquake overtook them with a noise of thunder and in the morning they lay dead in their houses flat upon their breasts the author of this catastrophe became a byword arabs say more unlucky than the hamstringer of the she-camel or than ahmar of thamud it should be pointed out that unlike the adites of whom we find no trace in historical times the thamudites are mentioned as still existing by diodorus siculus and ptolemy and they survived down to the fifth century a d in the core of equites thamudenae attached to the army of the byzantine emperors besides ad and thamud the list of primitive races includes the amalek amalekites a purely fictitious term under which the moslem antiquaries lumped together several peoples of an age long past exempli gratia the canaanites and the philistines we hear of amalekite settlements in the tahama netherland of mecca and in other parts of the peninsula finally mention should be made of tosim and jadis sister tribes of which nothing is recorded except the fact of their destruction and the events that brought it about the legendary narrative in which these are embodied has some archaeological interest as showing the existence in early arabian society of a barbarous feudal custom le droit du seigneur but it is time to pass on to the main subject of this chapter the pre-islamic history of the yoktanids or southern arabs on which we now enter is virtually the history of two peoples the sabaeans and the himyarites who formed the successive heads of a south arabian empire extending from the red sea to the persian gulf saba sheba of the old testament is often incorrectly used to denote the whole of arabia felix whereas it was only one though doubtless the first in power and importance of several kingdoms the names and capitals of which are set down in the works of greek and roman geographers however exaggerated may be the glowing accounts that we find there of sabaean wealth and magnificence it is certain that saba was a flourishing commercial state many centuries before the birth of christ 
sea traffic between the ports of East Arabia and India was very early established, and Indian products, especially spices and rare animals, apes and peacocks, were conveyed to the coast of Oman. Thence, apparently even in the 10th century BC, they went overland to the Arabian Gulf, where they were shipped to Egypt for the use of the pharaohs and grandees. The difficulty in navigating the Red Sea caused the land route to be preferred for the traffic between Yemen and Syria. From Shebwat Sabota in Hadramaut, the caravan road went to Ma'rib, Mariaba, the Sabayan capital, then northward to Makoraba, later Mecca, and by way of Petra to Gaza and the Mediterranean. The prosperity of the Sabaeans lasted until the Indian trade, instead of going overland, began to go by sea along the coast of Hadramaut and through the straits of Bab al-Mandab. In consequence of this change, which seems to have taken place in the first century AD, their power gradually declined. A great part of the population was forced to seek new homes in the north, their cities became desolate, and their massive aqueducts crumbled to pieces. We shall see presently that Arabian legend has crystallized the results of a long period of decay into a single fact, the bursting of the dike of Ma'rib. The disappearance of the Sabaeans left the way open for a younger branch of the same stock, namely the Himyarites, or, as they are called by classical authors, Homeritai, whose country lay between Sabah and the sea. Under their kings, known as Tuba'as, they soon became the dominant power in South Arabia and exercised sway, at least ostensibly, over the northern tribes down to the end of the 5th century AD, when the latter revolted and, led by Quleib ibn Rabia, shook off the suzerainty of Yemen in a great battle of Khazaza. The Himyarites never flourished like the Sabaeans. Their maritime situation exposed them more to attack, while the depopulation of the country had seriously weakened their military strength. The Abyssinians, originally colonists from Yemen, made repeated attempts to gain a foothold, and frequently managed to install governors who were in turn expelled by native princes. Of these Abyssinian viceroys, the most famous is Abraha, whose unfortunate expedition against Mecca will be related in due course. Ultimately, the Himyarite Empire was reduced to a Persian dependency. It had ceased to exist as a political power about a hundred years before the rise of Islam. The chief Arabian sources of information concerning Sabah and Himyar are 1. the so-called Himyarite inscriptions and 2. the traditions almost entirely of a legendary kind which are preserved in Mohammedan literature. Although the South Arabic language may have maintained itself sporadically in certain remote districts down to the Prophet's time or even later, it had long since been superseded as a medium of daily intercourse by the language of the North, the Arabic par excellence, which henceforth reigns without a rival throughout the peninsula. The dead language, however, did not wholly perish. 
Already in the 6th century AD, the Bedouin rider made his camel kneel down while he stopped to gaze wonderingly at inscriptions in a strange character engraved on walls of rock or fragments of hewn stone, and compared the mysterious half-obliterated markings to the almost unrecognizable traces of the camping ground which for him was fraught with tender memories these inscriptions are often mentioned by mohammedan authors who included them in the term musnad that some moslems probably very few could not only read the south arabic alphabet but were also acquainted with the elementary rules of orthography appears from a passage in the eighth book of hamdani's Iqlil but though they might decipher proper names and make out the sense of words here and there they had no real knowledge of the language how the inscriptions were discovered anew by the enterprise of european travellers gradually deciphered and interpreted until they became capable of serving as a basis for historical research and what results the study of them has produced this i shall now set forth as briefly as possible before doing so it is necessary to explain why instead of himyarite inscriptions and himyarite language i have adopted the less familiar designations south arabic or sabayan himyarite is equally misleading whether applied to the language of the inscriptions or to the inscriptions themselves as regards the language it was spoken in one form or another not by the himyarites alone but also by the sabaeans the Menaeans, and all the different peoples of yemen mohammedans gave the name of himyarite to the ancient language of yemen for the simple reason that the himyarites were the most powerful race in that country during the last centuries preceding islam had all the inscriptions belonged to the period of Hemurite supremacy, they might with some justice have been named after the ruling people. But the fact is that many date from a far earlier age, some going back to the 8th century BC, perhaps nearly a thousand years before the Hemurite Empire was established the term sabayan is less open to objection for it may fairly be regarded as a national rather than a political denomination on the whole however i prefer south arabic to either among the pioneers of exploration in yemen the first to interest himself in the discovery of inscriptions was karsten niebuhr whose beschreibung von arabien published in seventeen seventy two conveyed to europe the report that inscriptions which though he had not seen them he conjectured to be himyarite existed in the ruins of the once famous city of zafar on one occasion a dutchman who had turned mohammedan showed him the copy of an inscription in a completely unknown alphabet but at that time he says being very ill with a violent fever i had more reason to prepare myself for death than to collect old inscriptions thus the opportunity was lost but curiosity had been awakened and in eighteen ten ulrich jasper zitzen discovered and copied several inscriptions in the neighbourhood of zafar unfortunately these copies which had to be made hastily were very inexact 
He also purchased an inscription which he took away with him and copied at leisure, but his ignorance of the character led him to mistake the depressions in the stone for letters, so that the conclusions he came to were naturally of no value. The first serviceable copies of South Arabic inscriptions were brought to Europe by English officers employed on the survey of the southern and western coasts of Arabia. Lieutenant J. R. Wellstead published the inscriptions of Hassan Gurab and Naqab al-Hajar in his Travels in Arabia, 1838. Meanwhile, Emil Rüdiger, professor of Oriental languages at Halle, with the help of two manuscripts of the Berlin Royal Library containing Himyarite alphabets, took the first step towards a correct decipherment by refuting the idea for which de Sacy's authority had gained general acceptance that the South Arabic script ran from left to right he showed moreover that the end of every word was marked by a straight perpendicular line wellstead's inscriptions together with those which holton and cruttenden brought to light at sanaa were deciphered by gesenius and rüdiger working independently eighteen forty one Hitherto, England and Germany had shared the credit of discovery, but a few years later France joined hands with them and was soon leading the way with characteristic brilliance. In 1843, Théophile Arnaud, starting from Sana'a, succeeded in discovering the ruins of Ma'rab, the ancient Sabaean metropolis, and in copying at the risk of his life between fifty and sixty inscriptions, which were afterwards published in the Journal Asiatique and found an able interpreter in Osiander still more important were the results of the expedition undertaken in eighteen seventy by the jewish scholar joseph halevi who penetrated into the jauf or country lying east of sana which no european had traversed before him since twenty four b c when aelius gallus led a roman army by the same route after enduring great fatigues and meeting with many perilous adventures halevi brought back copies of nearly seven hundred inscriptions during the last twenty-five years much fresh material has been collected by e glazer and julius oiting while study of that already existing by praetorius halevi d h muller mortman and other scholars has substantially enlarged our knowledge of the language history and religion of south arabia in the pre-islamic age neither the names of the himyarite monarchs as they appear in the lists drawn up by mohammedan historians nor the order in which these names are arranged can pretend to accuracy if they are historical persons at all they must have reigned in fairly recent times perhaps a short while before the rise of islam and probably they were unimportant princes whom the legend has thrown back into the ancient epoch and has invested with heroic attributes any one who doubts this has only to compare the modern lists with those which have been made from the material in the inscriptions d h muller has collected the names of thirty-three Manayan kings certain names are often repeated a proof of the existence of ruling dynasties and ornamental epithets are usually attached to them thus we find thamar ali the rih glorious yathamar bayan distinguished karabail watar yuhanim great beneficent samah ali yanuf exalted 
Moreover, the kings bear different titles corresponding to three distinct periods of South Arabian history. Videlichet, priest king of Saba, Muqarrab Saba, king of Saba, Malk Saba, and king of Saba and Raidan. In this way, it is possible to determine approximately the age of the various buildings and inscriptions, and to show that they do not belong, as had hitherto been generally supposed, to the time of Christ, but that in some cases they are at least eight hundred years older. How widely the peaceful, commerce-loving people of Sabah and Himyar differed in character from the wild Arabs to whom Muhammad was sent appears most strikingly in their submissive attitude towards their gods, which forms, as Goldseher has remarked, the keynote of the South Arabian monuments. The prince erects a thank-offering to the gods who gave him victory over his enemies. The priest dedicates his children and all his possessions. The warrior, who has been blessed with due manslayings, or booty, or escape from death, records his gratitude, and piously hopes for continuance of favor. The dead are conceived as living happily under divine protection. They are venerated and sometimes deified. The following inscription, translated by Lieutenant Colonel W. F. Prideaux, is a typical example of its class. Sa'adillah and his son Benu Marthadim have endowed Il-Makkah of Hiran with this tablet, because Il-Makkah, lord of Awam Du Iran Alu, has favorably heard the prayer addressed to him, and has consequently heard the Benu Marthadim, when they offered the first fruits of their fertile lands of Arhaqim in the presence of Il-Makkah of Hiran, and Il-Makkah of Hiran has favorably heard the prayer addressed to him, that he would protect the plains and meadows and this tribe in their habitations in consideration of the frequent gifts throughout the year and truly his sa'adillah's sons will descend to arhaqim and they will indeed sacrifice in the two shrines of Athtor and shemsim and there shall be a sacrifice in heran both in order that il makkah may afford protection to those fields of bin marthadim as well as that he may favorably listen and in the sanctuary of il makkah of Harwat, and therefore may he keep them in safety according to the sign in which Sa'adillah was instructed, the sign which he saw in the sanctuary of Il-Makkah of Na'man, and as for Il-Makkah of Hiran, he has protected those fertile lands of Arhaqim from hail and from all misfortune, or from cold and from all extreme heat. In concluding this very inadequate account of the South Arabic inscriptions, I must claim the indulgence of my readers, who are aware how difficult it is to write clearly and accurately upon any subject without first-hand knowledge, in particular when the results of previous research are continually being transformed by new workers in the same field. Fortunately, we possess a considerable literary supplement to these somewhat austere and meagre remains. 
Our knowledge of South Arabian geography, antiquities, and legendary history is largely derived from the works of two natives of Yemen who were filled with enthusiasm for its ancient glories and whose writings, though different as fact and fable, are from the present point of view equally instructive. Hassan ibn Ahmad al-Hamdani and Nashwan ibn Sa'id al-Himyari Besides an excellent geography of Arabia, Sifatul Jaziratul Arab, which has been edited by D. H. Muller, Hamdani left a great work on history and antiquities of Yemen entitled Al-Iqlil, The Crown, and divided into ten books under the following heads. Book 1, Compendium of the Beginning and Origins of Genealogy. Book 2, Genealogy of the Descendants of Al-Hamesa ibn Himyar. Book 3, Concerning the Preeminent Qualities of Qahtan. Book 4, Concerning the First Period of History Down to the Reign of Tuba'a Abu Karib. Book 5, Concerning the Middle Period from the Accession of As'ad Tuba'a to the Reign of Dhu Nuwas. Book 6, Concerning the Last Period Down to the Rise of Islam. Book 7, Criticism of False Traditions and Absurd Legends. Book 8, Concerning the Castles, Cities, and Tombs of the Himyarites, the Extant Poetry of Al-Qama, the Elegies, the Inscriptions, and Other Matters. Book 9, Concerning the Proverbs and Wisdom of the Himyarites in the Himyarite Language, and Concerning the Alphabet of the Inscriptions. Book 10, Concerning the Genealogy of Hashid and Baqil, the Two Principal Tribes of Hamdan. The same intense patriotism which caused Hamdani to devote himself to scientific research inspired Nashwan ibn Sa'id, who descended on the father's side from one of the ancient princely families of Yemen, to recall the legendary past and become the laureate of a long-vanished and well-nigh forgotten empire. In the Himyarite ode, Al-Qasidatul Himyariya, he sings the might and grandeur of the monarchs who ruled over his people and moralizes in true Mohammedan spirit upon the fleetingness of life and the futility of human ambition. Accompanying the ode, which has little value except as a comparatively unfalsified record of royal names, is a copious historical commentary either by Nashwan himself, as von Kremer thinks highly probable, or by someone who lived about the same time. Those for whom history represents an aggregate of naked facts would find nothing to the purpose in this commentary, where threads of truth are almost inextricably interwoven with fantastic and fabulous embroideries. A literary form was first given to such legends by the professional storytellers of early Islam. One of these, the South Arabian Abid ibn Sharia, visited Damascus by command of the Caliph Muawiyah I, who questioned him concerning the ancient traditions, the kings of the Arabs and other races, the cause of the confusion of tongues, and the history of the dispersion of mankind in the various countries of the world and gave orders that his answers should be put together in writing and published under his name. This work, of which unfortunately no copy has come down to us, was entitled The Book of the Kings and the History of the Ancients, Kitab al-Muluk wal-Akhbaru al-Mazin. Mas'udi, died 956 AD, speaks of it as a well-known book, enjoying a wide circulation. 
it was used by the commentator of the Himyarite ode, either at first hand or through the medium of Hamdani's Iqlil. We may regard it, like the commentary itself, as a historical romance in which most of the characters and some of the events are real, adorned with fairy tales, fictitious verses, and such entertaining matter as a man of learning and storyteller by trade might naturally be expected to introduce among the few remaining mohammedan authors who bestowed special attention on the pre-islamic period of south arabian history i shall mention here only hamza of isfahan the eighth book of whose annals finished in nine sixty one a d provides a useful sketch with brief chronological details of the tubas or himyarite kings of yemen Qahtan, the ancestor of the southern Arabs, was succeeded by his son Ya'rub, who is said to have been the first to use the Arabic language and the first to receive the salutations with which the Arabs were accustomed to address their kings. Videlichit, In'im Sabahan, good morning, and Abeta Lana, mayst thou avoid malediction. His grandson, Abdushem Sabah, is named as the founder of Ma'rab and the builder of the famous dike, which, according to others, was constructed by Luqman ibn Ad. Sabah had two sons, Himyar and Kahlan. Before his death, he deputed the sovereign authority to Himyar and the task of protecting the frontiers and making war upon the enemy to Kahlan. Thus, Himyar obtained the lordship, assumed the title Abu Ayman, and abode in the capital city of the realm, while Kahlan took over the defense of the borders and the conduct of war. Omitting the long series of mythical Sabaean kings, of whom the legend has little or nothing to relate, we now come to an event which fixed itself ineffaceably in the memory of the Arabs, and which is known in their traditions as Seilul Aram, or the Flood of the Dyke. Some few miles southwest of Ma'rab, the mountains draw together, leaving a gap, through which flows the river Adana during the summer its bed is often dry but in the rainy season the water rushes down with such violence that it becomes impassable in order to protect the city from floods and partly also for purposes of irrigation the inhabitants built a dam of solid masonry which long after it had fallen into ruin struck the imagination of mohammed and was reckoned by moslems among the wonders of the world that their historians have clothed the bare fact of its destruction in ample robes of legendary circumstance is not surprising, but renders abridgment necessary. Towards the end of the third century of our era, or possibly at an earlier epoch, the throne of Ma'rab was temporarily occupied by Amr ibn Amr Me'esemeh, surnamed Muzaykiyah. His wife, Zarifa, was skilled in the art of divination. She dreamed dreams and saw visions which announced the impending calamity. Go to the dike, she said to her husband, who doubted her clairvoyance, and if thou see a rat digging holes in the dike with its paws and moving huge boulders with its hind legs, be assured that the woe hath come upon us so amr went to the dike and looked carefully and lo there was a rat moving an enormous rock which fifty men could not have rolled from its place 
convinced by this and other prodigies that the dike would soon burst and the land be laid waste he resolved to sell his possessions and depart with his family and lest conduct so extraordinary should arouse suspicion he had recourse to the following stratagem he invited the chief men of the city to a splendid feast which in accordance with a preconcerted plan was interrupted by a violent altercation between himself and his son or as others relate an orphan who had been brought up in his house blows were exchanged and amr cried out o shame on the day of my glory a stripling has insulted me and struck my face he swore that he would put his son to death but the guests entreated him to show mercy until at last he gave way but by god he exclaimed i will no longer remain in a city where i have suffered this indignity i will sow my lands and my stock having successfully got rid of his encumbrances for there was no lack of buyers eager to take him at his word Amr informed the people of the danger with which they were threatened, and set out from Ma'rab at the head of a great multitude. Gradually the waters made a breach in the dike and swept over the country, spreading devastation far and wide. Hence the proverb, Dehabu or Tafarraku Edi Sabah. They departed or dispersed like the people of Sabah this deluge marks an epoch in the history of south arabia the waters subside the land returns to cultivation and prosperity but marab lies desolate and the sabaeans have disappeared forever except to point a moral to adorn a tale al asha sang in the meter mutakarrab let this warn whoever a warning will take and marab withal which the dam fortified of marble did himyar construct it so high the waters recoiled when to reach it they tried it watered their acres and vineyards and hour by hour did a portion among them divide so lived they in fortune and plenty until therefrom turned away by a ravaging tide then wandered their princes and noblemen through mirage shrouded deserts that baffle the guide the poet's reference to himyar is not historically accurate it was only after the destruction of the dike and the dispersion of the sabaeans who built it that the himyarites with their capital zafar at a later period sanaa became the rulers of yemen the first Toba'a, by which name the Himurite kings are known to Mohammedan writers, was Harith called Al-Ra'ish, idest the featherer, because he feathered his people's nest with the booty which he brought home as a conqueror from India and Azerbaijan. Of the Toba'as who come after him, some obviously owe their place in the line of Himyar to genealogists whose respect for the Koran was greater than their critical acumen. Such a man of straw is Sa'ab Dhul Karnain, Sa'ab the Two-Horned. The following verses show that he is a double of the mysterious Dhul Karnain of Quranic legend, supposed by most commentators to be identical with Alexander the Great. Ours the realm of Dhul Karnain the glorious, realm like his was never won by mortal king 
followed he the sun to view its setting when it sank into the sombre ocean spring up he clomb to see it rise at morning from within its mansion when the east it fired all day long the horizons led him onward all night through he watched the stars and never tired then of iron and of liquid metal he prepared a rampart not to be o'erpassed gog and magog there he threw in prison till on judgment day they shall awake at last similarly among the tobaas we find the queen of sheba whose adventures with solomon are related in the twenty-seventh chapter of the koran although mohammed himself did not mention her name or lineage his interpreters were equal to the occasion and revealed her as bilqais the daughter of sharahil sharabil the national hero of south arabian legend is the tuba'a as'ad camel or as he is sometimes called abu karib even at the present day says von kremer his memory is kept alive and still haunts the ruins of his palace at zafar no one who reads the ballad of his adventures or the words of exhortation which he addressed on his deathbed to his son hassan can escape from the conviction that here we have to do with genuine folk poetry fragments of a south arabian legendary cycle the beginnings of which undoubtedly reach back to a high antiquity i translate here the former of these pieces which may be entitled the ballad of the three witches time brings to pass full many a wonder whereof the lesson thou must ponder whilst all to thee seems ordered fair lo fate hath wrought confusion there against a thing foredoomed to be no cunning nor caution helpeth thee now a marvellous tale will i recite trust me to know and tell it aright once on a time was a boy of ast who became the king of the land at last born in hamdan a villager the name of that village was khamer this lad in the pride of youth defied his friends and they with scorn replied none guessed his worth till he was grown ready to spring one morn alone on hemwom hill he was sore afraid his people knew not where he strayed they had seen him only yesternight for his youth and wildness they held him light the wretches him they never missed who had been their glory had they wist oh the fear that fell on his heart when he saw beside him the witches three the eldest came with many a brew in some was blood blood dark their hue give me the cup he shouted bold hold hold cried she but he would not hold she gave him the cup nor he did shrink though he reeled as he drained the magic drink then the second yelled at him her he faced like a lion with anger in his breast these be our steeds come mount she cried for asses are worst of steeds to ride tis sooth he answered and slipped his flank o'er hyena lean and lank but the brute so fiercely flung him away with deep deep wounds on the earth he lay 
then came the youngest and tended him on a soft bed while her eyes did swim in tears but he averted his face and sought a rougher resting-place such paramour he deemed too base and him thought in anguish lying there that needles underneath him were now when they had marked his mien so bold victory in all things they foretold the wars o assad waged by thee shall heal mankind of misery thy sword and spear the foe shall rue when his gashes let the daylight through and blood shall flow on every hand what time thou marchest from land to land by us be counselled stay not within hammer but go to the far and win to thee shall dalliance ne'er be dear thy foes shall see thee before they hear desire moved to encounter thee noble prince us witches three not jest but earnest on thee we tried and well didst thou the proof abide asad went home and told his folk what he had seen but no heed they took on the tenth day he set out again and fared to zafar with thoughts in his brain there fortune raised him to high renown none swifter to strike ever wore a crown thus found we the tale in memory stored and almighty is the lord praise be to god who liveth aye the glorious to whom all men pray legend makes asad the hero of a brilliant expedition to persia where he defeated the generals sent against him by the arsacids and penetrated to the caspian sea on his way home he marched through the hejaz and having learned that his son whom he left behind in medina had been treacherously murdered he resolved to take a terrible vengeance on the people of that city now while the tubaa was carrying on war against them there came to him two jewish rabbins of the benu koreza men deep in knowledge who when they heard that he wished to destroy the city and its people said to him o king forbear verily if thou wilt accept nothing save that which thou desirest an intervention will be made betwixt thee and the city and we are not sure but that sudden chastisement may befall thee why so asked he they answered tis the place of refuge of a prophet who in the after-time shall go forth from the sacred territory of koresh it shall be his abode and his home so the king refrained himself for he saw that those two had a particular knowledge and he was pleased with what they told him on departing from medina he followed them in their religion and he turned his face towards mecca that being his way to yemen and when he was between osfan and amaj some hothalites came to him and said o king shall we not guide thee to a house of ancient treasure which the kings before thee neglected wherein are pearls and emeralds and chrysolites and gold and silver he said yea they said it is a temple at mecca which those who belong to it worship and in which they pray 
Now the Hutherites wished to destroy him thereby, knowing that the destruction awaited the king who should seek to violate its precinct. So on comprehending what they proposed, he sent to the two rabbins to ask them about the affair. They replied, These folk intend not but to destroy thee and thine army. We wot not of any house in the world that God hath chosen for himself, save this. If thou do that to which they invite thee, thou and those with thee will surely perish together. He said, What then is it ye bid me do when I come there? They said, Thou wilt do as its people do. Make the circuit thereof, and magnify and honour it, and shave thy head, and humble thyself before it, until thou go forth from its precinct. He said, And what hinders you from doing that yourselves? By God, said they, it is the temple of our father Abraham, and verily it is even as we told thee, but we are debarred therefrom by the idols which its people have set up around it, and by the blood offerings which they make beside it, for they are vile polytheists, or words to the same effect. The king perceived that their advice was good, and their tale true. He ordered the Hothalites to approach, and cut off their hands and feet. Then he continued his march to Mecca, where he made the circuit of the temple, sacrificed camels, and shaved his head. According to what is told, he stayed six days at Mecca, feasting the inhabitants with the flesh of camels, and letting them drink honey. Then he moved out with his troops in the direction of Yemen, the two rabbins accompanying him, and on entering Yemen, he called on his subjects to adopt the religion which he himself had embraced, but they refused unless the question were submitted to the ordeal of fire, which at that time existed in Yemen. For as the Yemenites say, there was in their country a fire that gave judgment between them in their disputes. It devoured the wrongdoer, but left the injured person unscathed. The Yemenites therefore came forward with their idols and whatever else they used as a means of drawing nigh unto God, and the two rabbins came forward with their scriptures hung on their necks like necklaces, and both parties seated themselves at the place from which the fire was wont to issue. And the fire blazed up, and the Yemenites shrank back from it as it approached them, and were afraid. But the bystanders urged them on, and bade them take courage, so they held out until the fire enveloped them, and consumed the idols and images and the men of Himyar, the bears thereof. But the rabbins came forth safe and sound, their brows moist with sweat, and the scriptures were still hanging on their necks. Thereupon the Himurites consented to adopt the king's religion, and this was the cause of Judaism being established in Yemen. The poem addressed to his son and successor, Hassan, which tradition has put into his mouth, is a sort of last will and testament, of which the greater part is taken up with an account of his conquests and with glorification of his family and himself. Nearly all that we find in the way of maxims and injunctions suitable to the solemn occasion is contained in the following verses. 
O Hassan, the hour of thy father's death has arrived at last. Look to thyself, ere yet the time for looking is past. Oft indeed are the mighty abased, and often likewise are the base exalted, such as man who is born and dies. Bid ye him yar know that standing erect would I buried be, and have my wine-skins and Yemen robes in the tomb with me. And hearken thou to my sibyl, for surely she can foresay the truth, and safe in her keeping is castle Rayman A. In connection with Rayman, a few words may be added respecting the castles in Yemen, of which the ruined skeletons, rising from solitary heights, seem still to frown defiance upon the passing traveller. Two thousand years ago, and probably long before, they were occupied by powerful barons, more or less independent, who in later times, when the Hemurite Empire had begun to decline, always elected, and occasionally deposed, their royal master. Of these castles the geographer Hamdani has given a detailed account in the eighth book of his great work on the history and antiquities of Yemen entitled the Iqlil, or Crown. The oldest and most celebrated was Rumdan, the citadel of Sana'a. It is described as a huge edifice of twenty stories, each story ten cubits high. The four facades were built with stone of different colors, white, black, green, and red. On the top story was a chamber which had windows of marble framed with ebony and plain wood. Its roof was a slab of pellucid marble, so that when the lord of Romdan lay on his couch, he saw the birds fly overhead and could distinguish a raven from a kite. At each corner stood a brazen lion, and when the wind blew it entered the hollow interior of the effigies and made a sound like the roaring of lions. The adventure of As'ad Kamel and the three witches must have recalled to every reader certain scenes in Macbeth. Curiously enough, in the history of his son Hassan, an incident is related which offers a striking parallel to the march of Burnham Wood. Tossum and Jadis have already been mentioned. On the massacre of the former tribe by the latter, a single Tosmite named Rebah ibn Murrah made his escape and took refuge with the Toba'a Hassan, whom he persuaded to lead an expedition against his murderers. Now Rebah's sister had married a man of Jadis. Her name was Zarka'ul Yamama, Idest, the blue-eyed woman of Yamama, and she had such piercing sight that she was able to descry an army thirty miles away. Hassan therefore bade his horsemen hold in front of them leafy branches, which they tore down from the trees. They advanced thus hidden, and towards evening, when they had come within a day's journey, Zarka said to her people, I see trees marching. No one believed her until it was too late. Next morning, Hassan fell upon them and put the whole tribe to the sword. The warlike expeditions to which Hassan devoted all his energy were felt as an intolerable burden by the chiefs of Himyar, who formed a plot to slay him and set his brother Amr on the throne. 
Amr was at first unwilling to lend himself to their designs, but ultimately his scruples were overcome, and he stabbed the Tuba'a with his own hand. The assassin suffered a terrible punishment. Sleep deserted him, and in his remorse he began to execute the conspirators one after another. There was, however, a single chief, called Dhu Ru'in, who had remained loyal and had done his best to save Amr from the guilt of fratricide. Finding his efforts fruitless, he requested Amr to take charge of a sealed paper, which he brought with him, and to keep it in a safe place until he should ask for it. Amr consented and thought no more of the matter. Afterwards, imagining that Dhu Ru'ain had joined in the fatal plot, he gave orders for his execution. How, exclaimed Dhu Ru'ain, did not I tell thee what the crime involved? And he asked for the sealed writing, which was found to contain the verses, O fool, to barter sleep for waking, blessed is he alone whose eyelids close in rest. Hath Himyar practised treason, yet tis plain that God forgiveness owes to Dhu Ru'ain. On reading this, Amr recognised that Dhu Ru'ain had spoken the truth, and he spared his life. With Amr, the Tuba'a dynasty comes to an end. The succeeding kings were elected by eight of the most powerful barons, who in reality were independent princes, each ruling in his strong castle over as many vassals and retainers as he could bring into subjection. During this period, the Abyssinians conquered at least some part of the country, and Christian viceroys were sent by the Najashi, Negus, to govern it in his name. At last, Dhu Nuwas, a descendant of the Toba'a, As'ad Kamel, crushed the rebellious barons and made himself unquestioned monarch of Yemen. A fanatical adherent of Judaism, he resolved to stamp out Christianity in Najran, where it is said to have been introduced from Syria by a holy man called Femiun, Femion. The Himyarites flocked to his standard, not so much from religious motives as from hatred of the Abyssinians. The pretended murder of two Jewish children gave Dhu Nawas a plausible casus belli. He marched against Najran with an overwhelming force, entered the city, and bade the inhabitants choose between Judaism and death. Many perished by the sword, the rest were thrown into a trench which the king ordered to be dug and filled with blazing fire. Nearly a hundred years later, when Muhammad was being sorely persecuted, he consoled and encouraged his followers by the example of the Christians of Najran, who suffered for no other reason but that they believed in the mighty, the glorious God. Dhu Nuwas paid dearly for his triumph. Daus Dhu Thalaban, one of those who escaped from the massacre, fled to the Byzantine emperor and implored him, as the head of Christendom, to assist them in obtaining vengeance. Justinus accordingly wrote a letter to the Najashi, desiring him to take action, and ere long an Abyssinian army, seventy thousand strong, under the command of Aryat, disembarked in Yemen. Dhu Nuwas could not count on the loyalty of the Hemurite nobles. His troops melted away. 
when he saw the fate that had befallen himself and his people, he turned to the sea, and setting spurs to his horse, rode through the shallows until he reached the deep water. Then he plunged into the waves, and nothing more of him was seen. Thus died, or thus at any rate should have died, the last representative of the long line of Himyarite kings. Henceforth Yemen appears in pre-Islamic history only as an Abyssinian dependency or as a Persian protectorate. The events now to be related form the prologue to a new drama in which South Arabia, so far from being the center of interest, plays an almost insignificant role. On the death of the Nuwas, the Abyssinian general Ariat continued his march through Yemen. He slaughtered a third part of the males, laid waste a third part of the land, and sent a third part of the women and children to the Najashi as slaves. Having reduced the Yemenites to submission and re-established order, he held the position of viceroy for several years. Then mutiny broke out in the Abyssinian army of occupation, and his authority was disputed by an officer named Abraha. When the rivals faced each other, Abraha said to Ariat, What will it avail you to engage the Abyssinians in a civil war that will leave none of them alive? Fight it out with me, and let the troops follow the victor. His challenge being accepted, Abraha stepped forth. He was a short, fleshy man, compactly built, a devout Christian, while Ariat was big, tall, and handsome. When the duel began, Ariat thrust his spear with the intention of piercing Abraha's brain, but it glanced off his forehead, slitting his eyelid, nose, and lip, hence the name Al-Ashram, by which Abraha was afterwards known and ere he could repeat the blow, a youth in Abraha's service, called Atwada, who was seated on a hillock behind his master, sprang forward and dealt him a mortal wound. Thus Abraha found himself commander-in-chief of the Abyssinian army, but the Najashi was enraged, and swore not to rest until he set foot on the soil of Yemen and cut off the rebel's forelock. On hearing this, Abraha wrote to the Najashi, O king, Ariat was thy servant, even as I am. We quarreled over thy command, both of us owing allegiance to thee. But I had more strength than he to command the Abyssinians, and keep discipline and exert authority. When I heard of the king's oath, I shore my head, and now I send him a sack of the earth of Yemen, that he may put it under his feet and fulfill his oath. The Najashi answered this act of submission by appointing Abraha to be his viceroy. Then Abraha built the church Al-Qalis at Sana'a, the like of which was not to be seen at that time in the whole world, and wrote to the Najashi that he would not be content until he had diverted thither every pilgrim in Arabia. This letter made much talk, and a man of Benofuqayim, one of those who arranged the calendar, was angered by what he learned of Abraha's purpose, so he went into the church and defiled it. 
when Abraha heard that the author of the outrage belonged to the people of the temple in Mecca, and that he meant to show thereby his scorn and contempt for the new foundation, he waxed wroth, and swore that he would march against the temple and lay it in ruins. The disastrous failure of this expedition, which took place in the year of the Elephant, 570 A.D., did not at once free Yemen from the Abyssinian yoke. The sons of Abraha, Yaksum and Masruk, bore heavily on the Arabs. Seen no help among his own people, a noble Hemurite named Saif ibn Thiyazan resolved to seek foreign intervention. His choice lay between the Byzantine and Persian empires, and he first betook himself to Constantinople. Disappointed there, he induced the Arab king of Hera, who was under Persian suzerainty, to present him at the court of Medain, Tessaphon. How he won audience of the Sasanian monarch Nushirwan, surnamed the Just, and tempted him by an ingenious trick to raise a force of eight hundred condemned felons who were set free and shipped to Yemen under the command of an aged general, how they literally burned their boats and, drawing courage from despair, routed the Abyssinian host and made Yemen a satrapy of Persia. This forms an almost epic narrative, which I have omitted here apart from considerations of space, because it belongs to Persian rather than to Arabian literary history, being probably based, as Nudeka has suggested, on traditions handed down by the Persian conquerors who settled in Yemen to their aristocratic descendants, whom the Arabs called Alebneh, the sons, or Benu al-Ahrar, sons of the noble leaving the once mighty kingdom of yemen thus pitiably and forever fallen from its high estate we turn northward into the main stream of arabian history end of sabah and hemyar from a literary history of the arabs by reynold a nicholson this librivox recording is in the public domain